Hello, and welcome to Arsenal Audible. This is Nathan, and today I'm going to be reading a piece by Billy Carpenter called What We Learned from the Community Shield. It was published on a substack called Adu's Barbecue on August 8th, 2023. Now this piece is going to be a little bit different for me. Uh, there's a lot of charts, images, and graphics in here, which I'm going to attempt to explain. Uh, in audio format, it'll be a good learning experience. And it's also uh, much longer, uh, over 4,000 words. This piece is much longer than anything else that I've read uh, on Arsenal Audible yet. I don't know the word count of the other ones, but I know this one is considerably longer. So we're going to dive in here to what uh, Billy's analysis of Arsenal and Manchester City in the Community Shield. Let's go. There's a saying with parenting. You don't raise the child they are. You raise the adult they will be. I'm not so sure how much I actually believe that, but it helps my introduction. So here goes. This Arsenal preseason has been different than the last. Whereas last year was about establishing and maintaining new levels, this one has been more of an information hunt. Prior to Manchester City, at least, what's been clear is that Mikel Arteta is not only managing towards the moment he faces, He's on a quest to learn about the team they will become. Here's what he said on Friday, in a running theme. We are seeing a lot of things. The team gives you a lot of information every day, and some connections and relationships that you didn't expect. Sometimes you feel, look, what is happening there? And it is natural. So we have to have our eyes open to that, and not just close the door to something, because that is not the best thing to do. In the Community Shield, there was plenty to observe and learn. As always, my intent is not to cover the game in full, but to put a few interesting aspects under the microscope. Let's dive in. The first section of this piece is titled, The Choice at Striker. Warning, I'm pretty unabashedly excited about what I saw on Sunday. So instead of risking this article just becoming an uninteresting laundry list of nice things, I'll start off on a more measured plane. Arsenal are working through a bit of a short blanket question at the present. This is a phrase I think I saw in a Total Football Analysis magazine piece some time back, referring to the choice, cover your legs or cover your arms. Last time out against Monaco, there were a few dominant characteristics. The first area of note was a decision for warm legs, the much-awaited debut of the Thomas Rice pairing. You may remember we wrote a long scouting report on Declan Rice before he signed, before Havertz was linked as well. And here were some of the takeaways at the time. One, there is likely to be no wrong answer to the six or eight question with Rice, but it may be the difference between a top 10 world midfielder and an all-timer. Two, Rice's flexibility is a feature, not a bug. I don't think Arsenal has to originally choose between playing him with a six or the eight in the short term. Whatever his role, what matters most is to max out his defensive coverage and his opportunities to carry the ball forward with abandon. Three, I would suggest that Rice currently has marginally more plug-and-play potential at the eight, and more long-term potential as a best-in-world type at the six. Four, he is probably least impressive with his back to the goal in the first third. His tape doing modern build-up for West Ham is still scarce after all these years, and he hasn't been well-served by his coaching to date in this regard. I thought to myself how any issue I had with this game back there might immediately vanish with a certain Ukrainian as a pivot partner, 
allowing him to be more central. Any issues here do not seem to stem from a lack of fundamental skill, but of practice. As such, five, with the squad constructed as is, I would play him at the eight a lot in the early days, where we can feel reasonably certain about his levels. Despite his experience there, we are still in the insufficient data period of his most advanced work in the box. If he turns into a goals plus assist machine, simply keep him there and move other parts around. Six, against bona fide low blocks, which may be a good amount of games, particularly in league, I'd look for him to patrol the middle as a six, with a more 10 type placed at left center mid. On the current squad, that leaned towards Vera, Trossard, and Emil Smith-Rowe, but will likely include a transfer addition. If one of them starts showing signs of eliteness, or if the transfer option looks like a nailed-on starter, this plan just speeds up. Rice looked more comfortable at the 8 from the jump. It did some explosive and wide Toko Ime voice stuff that he flashed at West Ham, but didn't get the chance to demonstrate consistently because of his other responsibilities. As a reminder, he had 24 touches in the box all last year. Here, Billy includes a clip of Rice playing a give-and-go on the left side and jumps into the box, takes a shot, which narrowly misses the goal. Whereas most of Arsenal's build-up work last year was done in a 3-2 that evolved into a 2-3, the team built up in a 4-2-4 shape against Monaco. Without the presence of Zinchenko, this led to a heavily reinforced first-phase look. Even more, this would often be supported by Emil Smith-Rowe or Enkedia dropping in to break the lines after Rice dragged a midfielder wide. The nice part here? Rice offers sufficient threat as a dribbler on the wing that he commands attention, and Timber offers sufficient threat as a pivot that he deserves attention too. Last year, a defender may have cheated off of Xhaka with the confidence they could get back in place as needed. Which brings us to our other point of conversation from Monaco, Eddie Enkedia. He was active, crisp, technical, muscular, energetic, and most importantly, well-rounded. As you'll see in his overall action map, he was everywhere, taking on the role of an expansive false nine with aplomb, initiating 25 duels in all, and generally looking like a pretty complete central forward. There is a but, however, and it doesn't really have anything to do with Enkedia's performance, which was stellar. It's more about his evolving profile, the trade-off involved with Rice in the eight, and the downside to such a fortified 4-2 buildup. It's the short blanket problem. Your legs are warm, but your arms are cold. In an image here, Billy shows how Enkedia comes down to accept, but then swung around and prodded the back line. Rice is helping build up and stays put after Thomas sends the ball straight up to Eddie Enkedia, who bursts into the box, and after an excellent run through the middle and out wide, Enkedia brings the ball to the edge of the box and crosses it, but Rice is out of the picture, and Emil Smith-Rowe and Vieira are arriving on the scene too late. Nobody is home, and from building out of that fortified 4-2 buildup, Eddie and Kedia's explosive movements were simply too quick for the rest of the team, and by the time he puts the ball into the box, they did not have the opportunity to catch up. Similarly, when Enkedia would drop deep and then rip off a really clean turn, as he does in an image shown here, he gets surrounded by no time, as he is by four defenders in this image here, uh, because the defenders didn't have anybody else to worry about. The 4-2 buildup in that first phase 
pulls so many Arsenal people back towards the defensive end that it simply can't get to the offensive end quickly enough for Eddie and Kedia to have options with the ball once he makes a turn or collects up near uh, the opponent's goal. The team was only 3 of 16 on crosses for the day, and interestingly saw an increase in possession and control when Havertz came on for Rice. And the idea of Kai Havertz coming on for Declan Rice in the same midfield role for Arsenal Football Club in the year 2023 is still pretty bewildering, no? Contrast that to the previous game against Barcelona, when Havertz in the left eight, or whatever you want to call it, just happened to be there to knock home a bounce behind the striker and the other advanced midfielder. In the words of Mikel Arteta, the team now demands somebody here. This is a long way of saying the following. An extensively dropping false nine and a six-man buildup with two lower DMs, not to mention an active keeper, is excess materials. Counting that keeper, you might be building an 8v4, which introduces redundancies and crowdedness deep and leaves attacking options sparse once the break is on. One of the core advantages of a false nine is to drag center backs around and clear a zone for others to fill. With Rice and Odegaard unlikely to do that, you get some of the drawbacks of a false nine without enough of the benefit. In the more expected shape, one of those monocle crosses may have found a home. This helps illustrate why the still evolving in Kedia, not to mention the red-hot Trossard, were not chosen to start against Manchester City. Instead, as the zenith of our weeks-long focus on the long ball, Kai Havertz made his debut at the Arsenal 9. The decision was for warm legs, with the aid of Havertz as a more central target man, the hope was for a longer blanket. The second section of this piece is titled The Players and Strategy Out of Possession. We've covered some of the trade-offs with a 4-2-4 that morphs into a 4-4-2 out of possession, so it's time to share the advantages. I won't mince words. It's early, and it's not there yet by any stretch, but this lineup with a white Saliba, Gabriel, and Timber backline fortified by Partey and Rice in the mid-block looks like the stuff of Champions League dreams and carries best-in-world max potential in the press. But some vulnerabilities must be addressed before we can say that with any confidence. Did I just indeed mince words? To start, there was promising news for Gunners. Whereas Pep purpose-built a game plan to destroy the last arsenal he faced, going with a double-six build-up before blasting it long to Holland, he did not feel the confidence to do that against the improved event. Saliba, Rice, Timber, and, it should be said, a healthier Thomas, steered him away from the strategy. Instead, Manchester City stayed short. Their average goal kick was 6.6 meters, compared to 66.4 from Arsenal. We can argue about the proper lineage and of such buildups, but yes, it looked like Pep Zerbi out here. On Arsenal's side, it was an inherently pragmatic game plan. The door hinge of Pressers and Havertz, Rice, and Odegaard shaded play to the Manchester City left. And here, Billy includes an image from the second minute of the Community Shield, with Kai Havertz aggressively pressing Ortega, clearly pushing him to Ortega's left, with Rice, Odegaard, and Martinelli 
in support of that action. Arsenal here clearly wants Manchester City to play the ball out to the left. And there is a relative ease in the pressing decision against Manchester City here. Should one push the ball towards Akanji, Ake, Diaz, and Kovacic on one side, or Stones, Rodri, and Walker on the other? Easy. The clarity of this call may have led to the big Guardiola outlay. While parts of the pressing plan may have looked relatively novel, especially with Rice pushed so high, there weren't too many structural differences to the last time Arsenal faced Brighton, for example, and Xhaka served largely in the same role. Rice is just able to fill the responsibilities with some more aggression and athleticism, and they're perhaps a touch more compact and less jumpy than they were against Brighton. And here really includes a screenshot of Arsenal early on in the game against Brighton from last season, doing more or less the same thing, but reinforcing his point that he just made, that uh, Arsenal last season were less aggressive, uh, less pushy, and Rice's improved profile over Xhaka allows us to be more aggressive, um, more forceful in our front uh, press. The very two first things I mentioned in that scattering report of Rice at the eight. One, second ball recoveries after aerial duels. And two, this role in the high press. We remember all too well how destructive he can be when set loose up top. What was a bit novel was the rationalism of the press triggers. They had objectives beyond winning the ball high. If the ball went out to Akanji, Saka went hard. If the ball went to Diaz and his angle back to the keeper was cut off, Odegaard went hard. If the middle pressers thought they caught Kovacic or Rodri sleeping, they went hard. However, otherwise, and by and large, they were relatively relaxed, content to cut off central passing lanes and very play to the Manchester City left. If the ball got out to Stones, they calmly retreated back to the 4-4-2 block. If Ortega carried it up, they were careful not to bite. Saliba basically man-marked Holland, as Gabriel did Alvarez. You didn't see a lot of timber and white storming up the wings as reinforcements, for example. In all, this helped direct play to the less vibrant Manchester City left, which Billy includes a cluster map of all pass attempts uh, from the Community Shield, which has a lot of data in it, which I will not uh, attempt to convey all that verbally, uh, but suffice it to say, it does reinforce the point that he is making. And if you're interested in all the details uh, of the pass attempts uh, from both sides in this game, uh, you can view that at his posts, which I will link uh, in the show notes. From Arsenal's side, it was interesting to see them feel out their aggression dial in real time. The initial period was spent settling into their block, and after an opening stanza, things started to look pretty disciplined and claustrophobic for Manchester City. You can see in an image here the difficulty that they have in shuttling the ball to Holland or Alvarez from midfield, which indeed, uh, Arsenal has the two banks of four in defense with Alvarez and Holland uh, moving in between, but it'd be extremely difficult uh, to get the ball to them from a direct pass and showing how it would be quite a bit of work for Manchester City to break down these two banks of four. Once things started feeling solid, the team started evolving into a more fighting stance. Here, after a dead ball, Havertz communicated to Rice to step up, who then created a trap for Thomas. 
It's a little blurry, but you can see an image here that Rice is literally pointing at Partey to jump in and cover Kovacic uh, while Rice is tackling another player. But Thomas had a different idea. And to Rice's marginal frustration, which you can see illustrated here by his raised arms uh, in Thomas Partey's general direction, uh, Partey stuck back and he allowed Kovacic to receive in plenty of space right in the middle of the field. Now, there are a few explanations for this. Thomas may have simply been gun-shy after last year's mauling at the hands of Kevin De Bruyne in Holland, or he may have been acting on guidance to shadow mark the strikers instead of going with the normal Arsenal trap. While the ball wasn't won, the team kept regrouping successfully, but you generally don't want to get caught in between philosophies like this. Whatever was the case, this period had a few characteristics. Arsenal was increasingly solid in their coordination, which forced Man City to be a little more adventurous to unsettle the block. This allowed Arsenal to respond with more controlled aggression. And this was one of the three different foot-in moments that led to the possession in which Havertz had Arsenal's first big chance of the game. And in this moment that Billy's referring to, it shows the Arsenal back four completely covering three Manchester City players, which gives Rice the confidence to attack Jack Grealish, go in hard on a challenge, uh, on the press on Jack Grealish, and win the ball back, which led to a chance for Kai Havertz. I rewatched the Invincibles documentary recently. When talking about Patrick Vieira, Sol Campbell had this to say. It's great to have him in front of you, because you knew that by the time they got to you, they were probably knackered and beat up. Remind you of anyone? Out wide, the wingers, Martinelli and Saka, were truly doubling the wide men. This is something that has been used against Arsenal to great effect. And it isn't just about shutting down a dangerous player. It's about cutting off their ability to dialogue with the more central players. Which brings us to Jury and Timber. Last week, I ran out of time for a second post. So I wrote a Twitter thread about Arsenal's relative openness when out of possession throughout the preseason and whether there was reason for concern. The general thrust of the findings was that it was a lot of normal settling in. By retaining less possession and being a little later or simpler with assignments, they were easier to attack and manipulate. But there was another more structural thing of note. Arsenal is working out its backline dynamics. From the Twitter thread, what is usually thought to be a Zinchenko problem is really more of a clear invitation for opponents to attack that spot, regardless of its occupant. The huge majority of XG and attacks are still coming through that side, despite his absence. I hope that helps add context to some of the criticism that Zinchenko receives, fair and often unfair. The rest shape leaves the wings open by design. Like chess, control of the middle is paramount. From there, Arsenal builds an obstacle course for its opponents to get through. Counter-press, tactical foul, offside trap, forcing you away from goal, galloping giant center back, reinforcements arriving, keeper, etc. And that's why you've still seen a bunch of Zinchenko moments from the likes of Tomi, Tierney, and Kivior. It's hard to add defensive solidity, midfield control, up-pitch contributions, and have the speed to track back all at the same time. It's a tall order. From an opposing perspective, you can attack Arsenal's right, usually a deeper superstar center back and a conservative center back hybrid fullback or left to spot behind an adventuring left back, which is an easy choice. 
So the natural option would be to invert sum from the other side, which balances things out. But that has another problem. It fucks up the backline dynamics and puts Gabrielle as center center back, limiting Saliba's impact and stripping Gabrielle of his Gabrielle-ness. Enter Timber at left back, which I think might be the low-key biggest development of the preseason. He can be a center back hybrid, go wide or involved fully, and even interchange all that with Rice. While we talk about this being a tall order, you have to be continually impressed with Timber, who has settled in immediately and makes the left back position less of a Sophie's choice between attacking and defending. I have to think his immediate comfort at left back is one of Arteta's connections and relationships that you didn't expect, and it could have had major implications. He had so many shot blocks and calm rotations out wide, and the pressure that the position is put under came into clear focus as soon as Timber came off when Tierney played a role in the rather immediate concession. I could show you any amount of little body feints, dribbles, and defending, but instead, I'm going to show you a clip here. Timber, darting up the middle as a second striker and very nearly latching onto the ball in the Manchester City box. The defending was not impervious, however, as Pep's velociraptors have a nasty habit of learning how to open doors. Guardiola shifted extra bodies to the midfield, complicating assignments. With the kanji providing too easy a trigger, he shifted up the pitch as a quasi-winger, as did Walker, and Silva dropped in two places, centrally and all the way to left back. This made the door hinge semi-clumsily swing the other way, which provided a spot for Foden to drop into. And here is an image uh, showing Arsenal doing a high press. Ruben Diaz has the ball in the Manchester City box. And Arsenal now are pushing Manchester City to their right instead of their left, but uh, more hesitatingly so. They're not quite sure, uh, and they're not as direct or aggressive as before. And this gives Phil Foden a chance to slip in, take up a lot of space, and you know what happened next. Party simultaneously overcommitted and undercommitted, taking an awkward angle on the initial play and not having a tactical foul to offer after an early, highly questionable yellow, Foden turned him and burned him. But here's another thing to watch out for. With extra players in the midfield, Rice and Party now have wide-ranging, man-marking responsibilities, which makes it a little easy for Rice to get dragged out of the middle. By Palmer dropping into a spot that is nominally for the Manchester City right back, Rice now has to fight to stay in front of that play. He narrowly does, but he isn't able to fully disrupt the counter. Thanks to the new signings and the returns from injury, Arsenal have improved in a way that will prove useful against top teams. In this shape, they'll be much harder to go long against, and big strikers will have a tougher time. That said, there is still a stubborn issue. What happens when the midfield is packed, when their challenges don't get home, and when players are dragged wide? As I'm hitting post, I take days to write with these things, regretfully. I see John McKenzie has now tweeted about many of the same concepts, likely in better detail. I would encourage you to check that out. I don't think I contradicted him anywhere, but if I did, trust his version of events. And I will include a link to that tweet by John McKenzie in the show notes. But it's okay. He more than made up for it with some huge saves. On the target manning, Jesus can do this as well, by the way. Quite well, in my opinion. 
It is less suited to the abilities of Enkedia and Trossard. For all his development, Eddie is still a career 40 out of 115 in aerial duels. That's under 26%. If you take a look at the passes received by Havertz and Enkedia in the first halves of their respective games, you'll see Kai staying in the spine of the attack more, which suits this game better. And here's a chart showing the difference between Kai Havertz and Eddie Enkedia. In the middle third of the pitch, uh, vertically running from the center circle to the opponent's goal, uh, Kai Havertz successfully received six passes uh, and lost two. Eddie and Kedia lost two and did not successfully receive any. Even in its successes, you'll see some of the benefits and trade-offs for this kind of practical reinforcement to the back line. In the lead-up to the big Havertz chance that changed the flow of the game, Rice dropped down to a libero position between Saliba and Gabriel. This enables Saliba to unsheath the weapon that usually stays under wraps, his forward-carrying ability. With Saliba running all the way across the half-line, he then rifles it into White, who had snuck in with a jailbreak run behind Saka, who had moved into a half-space. Howards is waiting centrally, like a normal striker. And White crosses it in. Havertz gathers it in a spin and shovels it towards goal. The rebound goes towards Martinelli, who shoots, and is blocked. That chance was instructive. Facing a team like Man City, Arteta opted for warm legs. Rice helped unlock any progression from below, and Saliba was able to carry forward with abandon. Havertz in the left eight roll would have offered no such support. That said, you can see the marginal cost in the final screenshot. Against a weaker team where such low support was necessary, Arsenal would likely have another attacker in the frame. Even with such constraints, I thought Havertz was a little undersupported when long balls were headed to him, and Martinelli's role was too ancillary. My quick idea for that would be to push Timber up higher to hold width at the winger level, which should allow Martinelli to shade inside and do more associative runoffs of Havertz. He did it a little, but could do it more. Here's a silly, quick, imprecise graphic of a possible goal kick shape uh, created by Billy, showing Timber pushing up uh, almost at the halfway line, pretty much level uh, with Saka and Odegaard. Um, this would give Martinelli the ability to move in more towards Havertz, uh, with Odegaard looking in that mop-up space uh, to clean up anything that comes into the very center of the pitch. This will help Havertz, who always looks best when he's not purely man-marked by a center back, but interfacing and manipulating space with a buddy. The team ultimately still needs to create more chances in a game like this. Havertz performed well and reinforced the need of a profile like his in a shape like this. It wasn't perfect. He may have some persistent limitations when finishing with his right or when steering away from his more automatic goal mechanisms, headers and left hooks across his body, but his feel for pockets of space is so elite and despite aesthetics, he runs everywhere and adds an element of intimidation in the press. To see this much, this early, is certainly promising. After the goal, the gloves came off. And we got to see a little bit of Arteta's preferred YOLO ball formation for this season, where he went with a preposterously forward 3-5-2 at times last year when chasing a goal. He eventually settled into just using the normal shape with more aggressive profiles within it, plus Reese Nelson. This time he pulled a trick we've been hoping to see in these parts. 3-4-3, motherfucking diamond. And Billy includes a screenshot here showing uh, three at the back, White, Saliba, Tierney. 
with a four midfield diamond of Party in the back, Smith Rowe and Odegaard central, and Fabio Vera up top. It's a tiny sample, so there's little to draw from it. I will say that as a goal-chasing platform, I like it plenty. And would you like to know the backline formation? When this progressed up to advanced areas, there isn't a formation. There was a man, William Saliba. One, three, six. The fourth section of this piece is called Final Thoughts. There was much to observe, learn, and like from this one. Above all, it was nice to see such a strong 11 at a time when there were injuries to three key players, Jesus, Zinchenko, and Jorginho. Not to mention the absence of a striker who the Champions League finalists are after. To be able to play that well with some new pieces is an achievement in itself. If you think that the double pivot lineup with Timber at left back has the looks of a giant slaying Champions League iteration, with that many, most, other opponents should face more attacking thrust, then we have some similar thoughts. This can be solved by Rice simply playing more advanced. Sure but it is more likely to be found in the likes of Havertz, Emile Smith-Rowe, and others in that spot. Hopefully, I was able to demonstrate the benefits of a false nine in our more standard form while showing the limitations of it in a reinforced buildup like this. The press offered reasons for excitement and a couple reasons for pause. The thought of Havertz, Jesus, Rice, and Odegaard bearing down on a box should be the stuff of nightmares for many foes. But once the opponent packs the midfield and Arsenal are still working through the overburden of their markers, and there were some Monaco-like openings in the midfield as soon as Pep sent reinforcements. On the low block with this lineup, I have no notes. It looks like something pretty special. Uh, what else? What else? It's mostly a gush fest. One, I mentioned it briefly, but Ramsdale deserves enormous praise for his performance. As much as any, he is the reason Arsenal stay in the game. Two, two other performances I mentioned but deserve reinforcing, Saliba and White. That's one of the better performances I've seen White put in. He was so consistent last year, with the exception of two to three games where he looked so tangibly off physically. If Timber gives him the ability to manage his body at a higher level, there are big benefits. Three, I've tried to muster optimism for tyranny in recent weeks, but I will admit it requires some effort on my side. Timber's absence immediately showed how much pressure that spot is put under schematically. I can forgive him for the slips, but in a squad overrun with so many tight space technicians, the hoofs to nobody are killing me. I'll be supportive, whatever happens here, but he ultimately plays in one spot and wouldn't be in my top two attackers or top two defenders in that role. I'd love to be wrong. Six, Saka showed how he can beat a kanji. And even when he wasn't doing that, he was vacuuming up enough attention to clear away for the legs of White. He's impactful on his off days. 7. As I complete this, I understand how much I'm underappreciating a huge, tireless Odegaard effort against a top opponent. I feel your luck, and I agree with it. 8. Gabriel, with a fairly clear man-marking assignment and ample support around, is the best kind of Gabriel. He was faultless. Number 9. Just a spare observation when I was thinking about set pieces. This lineup is big. 10. Here's why I've always remained steadfastly optimistic about Vieira. He kicks balls real good. This is the end of my scouting report. In conclusion, 
Declan Rice plays for Arsenal. I know you've already watched the highlights a bunch, but what's another 10 times? Happy grilling. This has been a reading by Arsenal Audible. Thank you for listening along. Thank you.